We're going to turn these around. We've got some mascots here for today's message. And uh, another one up here, if you'd show that. Remember him? Ratatouille. One of the first messages that I preached here during the summer, I think it was four years ago, 2007, in the uh, Spiritual Cinema series, and probably still one of the favorite movies of the, probably now over 100 movies I've seen for that series, probably still very much my favorite, Ratatouille. There's a particular moment in that movie, and if you haven't seen it or you can't quite remember what it's about, it's about a rat in Paris who cooks, and not just cooks, but is an absolute gourmet and happens to find himself in a position where he's running an entire classic French kitchen with his genius. Of course, it can't be known to the public that he's a rat or the people would freak out, as eventually they do. But in sort of the climactic scene of the movie where Remy and his culinary skills really have to try and save the restaurant, he serves a dish, ratatouille, the vegetarian French dish, beautiful stuff, wonderful eggplant and squash, I think a number of other things, a tomato kind of sauce to it as well. He serves it for this stern, unforgiving, unrelenting critic with the beautiful name, perfect name, Anton Ego. (laughs) Anton Ego, you know, he exists to demolish other people's creations. This is why Anton Ego is in the world. The funny thing happens, Remy, before Anton Ego knows that it's a rat, although he's actually one of the few people after the fact who can accept, accept the fact that a rat has been making these amazing creations because of this thing that happens. This ratatouille is served to him, and Anton Ego, snide, sneering almost, puts the fork into his mouth, and all of a sudden his eyes go wide. And he travels back in time to that kind of day that a lot of kids have, and I think actually a lot of us adults have too, when everything goes wrong. When we skin our knees or skin our feelings or skin someone else's feelings, and we just want to go home and crawl into into bed and be cared for and cry. Anton Ego arrives home as a small boy, and his mother puts down this plate of ratatouille before him. And he is really nourished. He is fed, not just in the sense of feeding the fuel that his body needs, but his heart is fed and his soul is fed and he really comes alive. And years later, after that memory has been frosted over by the harsh critic, it comes back to life and that flame glows again. In that moment, he remembers what pure bliss is like what it's like to really be fed, what it is to mean the words universally, soul food. This message series that I'm doing throughout this month of January and next week, beginning of February, is all about trying, and I include myself in this very much, trying to slow down in a world in which more and more and faster and faster is often demanded of us because of our toys that we love and that some of us are tethered to, almost as if it was a second umbilical cord. This world that wants to reach us wherever we are, and we want to reach the world wherever it is. And somehow we think if we're not productive all the time, then somehow we are falling out of fashion or out of favor with things, and we worry about our worth. In learning to slow down and pay attention in this on-demand world, it is about The very simple things that I think the heart of all mature spirituality comes down to. Can we pay attention to what's really going on in our lives? Really pay attention, really look and listen and open ourselves to what is there in our lives and not look to someplace else or some imagined state 
or sometime else, but pay attention here and now and be here. This message series began with the most basic thing that is awareness of slowing down begins with. That nature, that evolution, that God, choose whomever, has equipped us with, with the breath, that we can find different ways of being in our body so that peace and presence really are native to us. Beyond the breath, I think the single most basic thing after that is how we relate to what we nourish our bodies with, with food. Now, I've got to be honest here. I am a dyed-in-the-wool foodie. I look online and sometimes in the pages of the magazine at gourmet and food and wine and all those kinds of things. I look at online, yeah, I look at, uh, I look at food porn. It's, it's all G-rated. But, you know, I think of myself, ooh, I can make that for myself sometime. I can make that for other people. I can aspire to that. And i got to tell you, you know, if I suddenly strike the lotto tomorrow, you know, get very rich, Wellspring's going to see a big chunk of that. I'm not going to leave the ministry here, but I'm going to find some time for me to get trained by a master chef to really learn how to cook. I'm self-taught, and I am very, very good, I must tell you, being honest and not egocentric. I'm very good, but I'm not that good, and I know I can be a lot better. So that's one of my aspirations in life. So this sense of eating soulfully, eating mindfully, is about so much more than just the eating. What I love about cooking is it's about the entire process. It's about taking the raw ingredients, sometimes very simple stuff, and not dressing them up in any kind of amazing or exotic way, but just bringing out their flavors and bringing them together in such a way that really I know I'm a part of creation. I feel very much attuned and aligned with the universe in the kitchen. This is what I mean by eating soulfully, by being able to experience what Anton Ego did. The soul is for me, whether it's metaphorical or metaphysical for you, it is the quality of excellence for its own sake. So much of what we do in life is about experiences that are supposed to move us down the line. I do this so I can get that. If, then. What I'm calling the quality of soulful eating and indeed soulful, mindful living, if you will, is the ability to be here in the midst of our lives and accept and love its flavors because they are good in and of themselves. I think if there's anything true to be said about soulfulness or the soul, it is that it is nothing. It is, break the word apart, no thing. That quality of our lives is not to be used to help us get something else, but because we are equipped by the nature of life to be able to savor and flavor our lives in and of themselves and know them as good, in joyfulness and in presence and in love. That's really hard, especially with food in this society. It is a fast food world that we live in more and more and more. Thoreau wrote well over 150 years ago, and God, if it was true then, it is really true now. He said, so many of us are determined to be starved before we are even hungry. See, when we come at our food or at our very lives from the place of starve, that we need so much, we need so much, we are driven by necessity. We cannot have that capacity of truly relating to our lives and being there and experiencing them as a good thing. For those of us who work a program of recovery, we know this as staying in touch with, not driven by compulsion, but opening up that place of what we call our God-shaped holes, opening up that space of primal hunger, of true yearning, not just for nourishment, but for being nurtured. It's the kind of thing that Anton Ego gets back in touch with in the movie Ratatouille. But trying to shrink space and time 
It drives us between the poles of being completely stuffed and filled or being completely empty and starving. Rushing between those two poles, not being in that place where you get to recognize the flavor of our real hungers. I think this is true. I'm going to ask you to do a little uh, informal opinion survey with me. How many of you have done something else while eating recently? And just don't raise your hands quite yet. Uh, How many of you have watched TV while eating recently? All right. How many of you have been on the computer while eating recently? How many of you, and by the way, this really isn't safe at all, but I'm going to cop to it as well. More accidents are caused by this year after year after year because more people are doing it. How many of you have been eating while driving recently? All right. Thank God there's fewer of us. That means the roads are marginally more safe than if we were home in front of our televisions. Well, what this does is it does not allow us the space to even focus on the thing that we are doing, whether it's driving or whether it's eating, to really love the flavor of what we are putting into our bodies and to be mindful of what we are putting into our bodies. Some of you may have heard this past week about the fact that uh, Taco Bell was sued by a group down in Alabama or Texas that said they could not call their quote unquote meat actual beef because it is said in the suit that it only contains 35 percent beef. Now, if you like Stephen Colbert, I'd really recommend that you see this. If you have a chance, he sat there, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday night, with three mammoth-sized beef burritos saying, I know how to get around this, only 35% beef. I'm going to eat three of them, 35 plus 35 plus 35. I'm getting 105% of the beef that is recommended for me. This is the complete thing. And I love the Taco Bell statement. They, they said it's sort of sneaky. It said, we begin with 100% beef. Beginning there is not necessarily ending there. So whatever the case of this particular quote-unquote meat is, I love the way that the website The All, T-H-E-A-W-L, put it this past week. They wrote tongue firmly in cheek, but also very serious at the same time, these words. The American love of consuming dubious meatstuffs at rock-bottom prices has collided with the American love of suing anyone, anywhere, for any possible reason, at any time. It is a wonder at all that we see all these ads for Zantec all the time. And they just upped my father's Pepsi again. Is it such a wonder that we have such indigestion and dis-ease in our bodies so often if we're not taking our food in mindfully? One of the things I really liked about a book and a movie that I did last summer, Eat, Pray, Love. Actually, I couldn't stand the love part at all. It was like a lifetime movie. It was so... Yeah hackneyed and awful. I love the pray part in the ashram. And I like the eat part as well, too, because they showed what eating in Italy is like. And they really got it because I just returned from Italy about two months before then. And the thing in so many parts of Italy, the meal is a chance to gather and connect. It is good in and of itself. And people have the opportunity to really share that primary hunger and that primary nourishment when people gather. In Italy, people do increasingly Probably not as much, unfortunately, because i got to say, I saw McDonald's in Rome, and it sent me shivers. Why, if you're in Rome? Why? Why would you go to McDonald's? I'm thinking, oh my God, this is more and more of the future. We are spreading our tentacles for crappy eating all throughout the world. But when we, even here, can slow down, we can honor that need for soulfulness, that need as we talk about in our beliefs and values... That hunger for connection with each other and with the sacred in this life. 
when we slow down, we can recognize that there are deep ethical dimensions, spiritual dimensions to Emerson's beautiful words that each of us can have an original relationship with the universe. When I'm asked to pray at mealtimes out loud, which very often, you know, recurs for me, it happens for me regularly, I say something like a gloss or version of these words. For the many hands, known and unknown, that have helped bring this food to this table for the nourishment of our bodies and our spirits. For the many hands, known and unknown. See, when we can slow down long enough to recognize relationship, it feeds right back into gratitude. And the more we are grateful, the more it opens up in us the capacity to recognize that we are always in relationship, even and sometimes especially with the food that is before us. This is that deep quality, which is Unitarian Universalism at its best, which is recognizing that interdependence is the heart and the truth of each and every one of our lives. We open up in ourselves and sometimes it can make us uncomfortable and it makes me uncomfortable. But that's also just a warning sign that I should pay attention even more. We're asked to answer and start to answer these questions. Probably not once and done, but where does this food come from? How did this food arrive here? It wasn't just shrink wrapped or canned or put into a nice display. It came from somewhere. And I am finding myself more and more compelled these days, not from any external source, but from the call of my own growth to ask that question. We have friends here in the Philly area. They have a, a the, the, the woman in, in the couple. Um, she has, um, she has a, a brother who lives in North Carolina and the brother lives with the a woman he's seeing right now. And they're sort of in that, I guess sweet spot, maybe might be a word for it, a very idealistic phase that they know they're going to grad school and they've left college and they're really trying to live off the land. They're living in rural North Carolina, really trying to, as much as possible, eat what they grow and can produce themselves. The name of their blog, by the way, is called Two Scientists Walk Into a Kitchen. It's wonderful. Two social scientists, excuse me, walk into a kitchen. And they tell the story about what it's like for these very, you know, sort of Eastern intelligentsia types to live in rural North Carolina and their neighbors and the fact that one of their neighbors, uh, one of the neighbor's dogs broke into their chicken coop because they are raising chickens and they are eating the eggs every day. And the next door neighbor, who's a bit of a redneck type, it seems, didn't even apologize that the dogs broke in and killed two of their hens. But what he did to sort of begrudgingly say, I guess I'm a little sorry, is he brought over two of the nastiest tempered, um, sorry about this pun, foul tempered creatures that you will ever, ever think about. They were matted and ugly and it looked like they'd just been plucked from the side of the road. And he said, here, you can have these two hens. The problem is, as they write on their blog, is that they were not hens at all. They were two roosters. And they found that out starting at six o'clock in the morning when the sun would come up. And these mean, mean roosters that, of course, don't lay any eggs and they're vegetarian. So what are they going to do with them? They try to move them along. They try to give them someone else. No one will take one. Eventually, they find a home for one. But eventually, this other rooster is going to die. And so this leads to the blog post entitled, Two Vegetarians Slaughter a Rooster, which raises for both of them deep questions about their participation. I'm going to read from what they said because I think it's right on point. We should all think about more about the things that we eat, why we eat them, and where they come from. An animal died for my cocoa van. 
That should be taken seriously. But it shouldn't just be taken seriously because I did the butchering. Animals have died for all of the meat we consume, from our bacon in the morning to our turkey club at lunch. In order to eat them, we should be comfortable with that. Now that I am a participant in that process, I don't know that I am entirely comfortable. Now, I must be honest here. I am not a vegetarian. If you've ever seen me in front of a plate of ribs, it's not funny. It's delicious, but all fingers and toes, move away, please. But from reading people like Tolstoy and Thich Nhat Hanh and the genius autistic writer Temple Grandin, who because of the way that she sees the world, understands that, yes, animals do suffer, even if they cannot articulate it in the same way that we articulate our suffering. Because of reading this and focusing on it and seeing, yes, some of those god-awful documentaries about mass factory farming in America, I found that I have had to wrestle with my conscience about this a lot. Now, I'm not perfect in this, far from it, and I'm not sure there is a perfect. Actually, there is no perfect. So I don't think there's any role in this place about what's ecologically sustainable, what's morally sustainable for any form of moralism or self-righteousness. That's not how I learned and how I have grown myself with this. What I do believe, however, very much at the heart of what this message series is about, is that when we put the capacity and the premium for speed first and foremost, it reduces our ability to exist mindfully with the choices that we make in this life. It's as if we don't even take the time to ask the question, how did this food arrive here? What suffering, if any, was involved in it? What labor, if any, was involved in it? What is its effect and what is my effect of making these choices in the wider world beyond just my own palate? As I said before, I learned to cook largely on my own with the help of a few people. With help my mom, who didn't know she was dying when she had just had started teaching me to cook. And so she left a lot of things unanswered for me. My stepmother has filled that gap a little bit and helped me learn how to cook. But I got to tell you, I mostly learned how to cook from the early days from this amazing new creation back then called TV Food Network. There would be an entire half hour or an entire hour just about how to make one dish. That television network does not exist anymore. At some point, and I think it has to do with our capacity for speed and for now and to be mindless consumers, TV Food Network turned from the process of creation, how we take things from their raw states and make them into something delicious and wonderful, to a state of consumption. Show me beautiful stuff. Show me food porn on TV, and I want to eat it, and I will start salivating. When we slow down, we allow ourselves, with food or really with anything else, to align ourselves with that deeper question, are we in touch with creation and not just consumption? Are we living out the true meaning of our UU heritage, which doesn't say we are passive people sitting back just receiving creation. In fact, at our deepest levels, we are co-creation of the creation going on right here, right now. Not just people taking it in, but also giving it back. We notice our bodies in this as well, too. We notice what it is to be nourished, what it is to savor something what it is to move beyond what the great mystic Martin Buber called the I-it relating to the world, where the it is everything that we might use to help us achieve our ends and enter back into what he called that deeper I-thou, that form of real relationship with the world as it is. It is, I think, at the deepest meaning of the song that we just sang, Holy Now, which is probably a song that we do more regularly here at Wellspring than any other song. 
if you just don't like its lyrics or like to listen to it, but actually say, well, there's a lesson here. I think it is about this capacity to live in communion and in deep connection with things and to say it is not just way back when or the scriptures that are holy. It is right here and right now and every part of creation has some element of the sacred within it. To grow spiritually means that we are not just driven by our bodies, but leave some rooms for that spiritual question, are we paying attention? It was probably well over 15 years ago when I had my first experience of mindful eating. And I was nowhere near mature enough to integrate it in any level into my life. But the experience stayed with me. I was invited as a guest when I was in seminary in New York City to a Zen Buddhist monastery in Queens, in the borough in New York City. And I remember over the spate of 15 minutes, coming on the heels of a 20-minute silent meditation, we were to eat in complete silence six, as I remember them, tiny pieces of vegetarian sushi and a little, must have been not much more than a shot glass worth of miso soup. And they said the only thing with this mindful eating is don't, as Remy might have said, hork it down. <laughs> Savor it. Eat in the silence. Take in the smells. Understand what you're feeling while you eat. And the amazing thing, although I did not think I would be able to last the 15 minutes without just gobbling it down, I did. And I actually had some food left over at the end of that 15 minutes. And what I remember is that, yeah, I was still a little hungry, but I actually did start to feel fed. Taking the time and paying attention allows us to experience that quality of soulfulness. Of course, it is much easier to talk about it than to do it and to know it. And so I'm going to invite up Linda Peduto right now, and she's going to share with us an exercise from one of the Western mas uh, masters of the tradition of mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn, some of you know, has helped thousands of people, his teachings over the years, exist with deeper presence in their bodies, especially if they're experiencing stress or pain, loneliness or anger. So, Linda, come up and we are going to hand out to you right now what I can promise you are all organic raisins. Take one and pass them along. This paying attention makes a difference. It's made a difference in my own life. I said I continue to eat meat, but I've decided that with all the meat I bring into my house that I will pay more for it to ensure that it comes from a place in which cruelty and suffering were not inflicted, and sometimes intentionally, upon those creatures. This paying attention makes a difference in our lives. It makes a difference in really calling us to awaken in calling us to recognize the savoring and the flavoring that's already there. I'm going to conclude with this ancient story. At first it was Buddhist, I believe. It's been told so many different times and places. It's about a person who's walking one day across a great plain. And they spy at first something that looks like it's a dust cloud on the horizon, but it's growing and getting bigger and bigger. And this person, she sees that it's actually headed right for them. And they sort of quicken their pace a little bit. And they see that that dust cloud quickens its pace and it's gaining on them. And this person, she sees that it's a wild pack of dogs. 
And she really starts running, running until she's completely almost out of breath and gets to the end, the furthest point she can go because she gets to the edge of a cliff and she knows eventually those dogs are going to bear down on her. And she sees that her only way out is a small twig, a small branch sticking out the side of the rock wall outside the cliff and she lowers herself down onto it. And it's not so far down that she's thinking, well, maybe I can't jump the rest of the way down and I won't, you know, maybe I'll just break an ankle, but I'll live. She says, unfortunately, the ground underneath her is moving. And she comes to see that it's snakes. Up above, she sees the dogs waiting for her to climb back up. Down below, she sees the snakes waiting for her to fall. And she says, well, I guess this is it then. And at that same moment, she looks straight ahead. And she sees at the base of that twig that's keeping her aloft and alive, these beautiful red berries. And she says, well, what do I have to lose? And she sticks out her tongue and she opens her mouth. And she eats those red berries, and they are the most delicious thing she has ever had in her life. She savors them completely. And even in that dire moment, she is happy. Now, hopefully, we do not have to be driven over a cliff with dogs above and snakes below to get us to pay attention To understand that so much of what is truly simple in this life can be beautiful and rich and good and flavorful and really nourishing. The hope is that for all of us, we can slow down long enough to honor our need for connection with what we eat, with who we are, and to find delight there. And to know that the old song that the Quakers sang is absolutely true. It is a gift to be this simple. And in being simple to also be free. And to know that turning day after day, turning into this way of being, by turning and turning, we might come round right. Today, may you be fed. And may it be delicious. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit that animates our hunger, divine of this day and its meals, may we hold open both our emptiness and our fullness. May our emptiness not be of such that we are starving, and in our emptiness may we remember those who are actually starving and not by choice or fasting. And in our fullness may we not be bloated having fed ourselves so quickly that we do not take time to savor and be fed. May we exist in that place of true hunger and true nourishment. As we are fed, may we feed others, and may our lives be blessed in doing so. Amen.